Hello and welcome to What We Talk About When We Talk About Tech, a podcast about tech storytelling and the words and narratives shaping the future. I'm Rich Gull. You can follow me on Twitter at Rich G Gull, and I'm here with my co-host Jennifer Riggins as always. You can follow her on Twitter at JK Riggins and in this week's episode we're chatting with Amanda Brock who is the CEO of Open UK which is an organisation that is evangelising for open in the UK. So it covers a kind of whole range of things from open source software to open hardware and open data um, and we're going to talk a little bit about what Open UK does, what it covers, um, but also about some of the challenges as well for um, open source. So they've recently released a report looking at the state of open in the UK, and they're also doing some really good work on profiling and highlighting some of the people that are really making open such an important part of the UK's tech industry. So yeah, so we're excited to get into that. But first of all, uh, thank you to Amanda for joining us. Thanks very much for having me along today. So we're going to talk about kind of what Open UK does and all of that sort of stuff. But just to start off, could you kind of give us an introduction to who you are and a little bit about your background as well? Sure. I'm Amanda Brock. I'm CEO at Open UK, which I've been for around 18 months. Prior to that, I spent almost exactly 25 years as a lawyer, nearly 20 of those in-house in a variety of different companies and sectors, and five years in a company that you'll probably know, Canonical. I joined them at the beginning of 2008 and I was general counsel. So I was head lawyer there and I set up and ran the legal team until the end of 2012, actually. I was employee 165, so fairly early days of Canonical. And could you also, so we'll get into detail about Open UK, but could you give a bit of sort of background to Open UK and like why it exists and that sort of thing? Yeah, it's existed for a little while in different guises. And in its current format, it's existed for pretty much the 18 months that I've been involved as CEO, a few months before just transitioning into the the organisation that it is now. I was reminded today that we launched in September 2019 at the House of Commons. They were contacting me to try and give me a refund and it made me think that we had provisionally booked a dinner there. So who knows, something we might actually be able to do next year and take folk along. We really kicked off in January 2020 and that's when we had our first board meeting and we set the strategy, which is UK leadership in open technology. And we shifted from being like the other organisations around Europe, which focus purely on open source software, to focus on open source software, open hardware and open data. And of course, with that vision of UK leadership in open technology, it's a sort of inward looking organisation, but only to the extent that we want to showcase and promote the great work that's happening in the UK. But most of that great work, of course, is happening on a global and collaborative basis. So we are very outward looking as well. And unintentionally, we've ended up with three pillars, which are community, legal and policy and learning. And we can talk more about those, I'm sure, as we go on. So before we kind of go any further, could you sort of explain for people listening, so when you sort of talk about open, like what is it you're talking about? And also how kind of the sort of the general term open sort of is is kind of important to what Open UK does rather than just, as you say, the open source element. 
And we refer to it generally as open technology and the three opens. John Laban, one of the board members, sort of coined that phrase, the three opens. And we use software, hardware, data, because we think that when you look around the sphere of anything that's opened up and collaborative and shared on the commons basis, you can find a, a way to fit it into one of those three headings, one of those three categories. I'm sure at some point somebody's going to come along and show me, I don't know, open mushrooms or whatever it is that doesn't fit within that. But so far, we've managed to fit absolutely everything into that, whether it comes to things like open seeds and open recipes, all sorts of different things we've managed to fit. So that that was our way of trying to create a sweeper up or a catch all. And it was really a refocus because we understand today that absolutely everything that we do with software involves data. And we're very aware that data is at the center, whether you're talking about business and revenue generation and yet revenue models, whether you're talking about interaction with citizens and the citizens' protection and rights around their own data and how that's used in a software environment, or whether you're talking about government and looking at things like digital and data sovereignty, which um, I know you're aware that we've done quite a lot of work on at Open UK. It's interesting because I hear open data all the time. And obviously we talk about open source, people automatically think of open software. I actually think the open hardware is an interesting topic. What is included in that and how does that even work? Yeah, now this is where we should really have, or I recommend you get along Andrew Katz, who is one of our great supporters at Open UK. And Andrew is probably the world's leading expert in open hardware based up in Oxfordshire. And he drafted for CERN the open hardware license, which was approved by the OSI earlier this year. And the CERN license is the first OSI approved license, which covers software and hardware. So really interesting stuff. And um, open hardware is more about opening up the specifications and the, the descriptions of the hardware. And for those who work in the silicon space, whilst it's not my area of core expertise, they've sort of fairly well explained to me that you get to a point where it's hard to differentiate between software and hardware in that space. So there was all the more reason to bring it into the, the camp and it doesn't fit with either data or software. But also we see in the UK that there's a fairly thriving open hardware community. So just to understand what open hardware is more because like things are typically sold. Is this just individuals building their own? Are they mimicking other specifications? Like how does it even work? Well, you see projects like OSHA, which have existed in the UK for quite a long time, that's more of a sort of meetup collaborative group of people sharing concepts and ideas through to things like Risk 5, which is now part of the Linux Foundation and very formally, collaboratively at scale, building those kind of specifications. So it's a, it's a full remit, full gambit, pretty much like software, to be honest, just growing. Yeah, no, it, it's, it's an exciting area. And so taking all those three things together, what are, before we kind of go any further, like what are the aims of Open UK and kind of how does it interact with all these various different like touch points like business, like yeah. government and, and kind of going back to your pillars as well, yeah. like kind of education too? So the pillars of community, legal and policy and learning. Let's start there. You may have seen our current logo, which was an update earlier this year, and it has three little dots between the Open and the UK, which represent open source software, hardware, data. And then the circle that sits next to that has three arrows, and those represent community, legal and policy and learning, and one flows into the other. So we start with the community, which we obviously are trying to bring together to create a cohesive community across software, hardware, data, but across all sorts of different projects. Because what tends to happen naturally and understandably is that we 
all go off and participate in projects which are global and we end up not knowing our neighbours. You know, my lockdown story is that I've become very good friends with a lady called Sonia, who is an open data person at Microsoft and lives like across the street from me. A couple of years ago, she lived six houses from me and I had no idea who she was, yet we've worked together. Utterly bizarre. And there's lots and lots of stories like that. I think I was extremely lucky in my various roles that I was able to travel quite a lot and met a lot of people through conferences. So I'm fairly well positioned to help bring those people together. And that's very much our first pillar, bringing people together, creating a community that's geographically focused, but spans all the existing projects, all the different touch points and tries to create a single voice for all of those. And by doing that, by creating that cohesive community, we can use their influence to have some impact on legal and policy. We have an amazing group of about 18 lawyers who are very experienced and open, who sit on our legal group and who respond to UK, European legislation generally. Uh, When there are proposals for change, they'll get involved. But we also sent over to the Supreme Court Uh, in conjunction with a number of other organisations, an amicus brief. So a friend's briefing with uh, an explanation of the real concerns around open source in the Google Oracle case. And I think we were the only organisation outside of the US to do that. So that's quite important too. So we have this community that uses its impact on legals, but also on policy. And we're involved with things like Gaia X. We were a day one member of Gaia X. I think we're one of two UK companies described as a a lifeline for the UK when we joined. We work... um, on the we have a policy piece working on the emerging mobile emerging telco space and they're working on some briefing papers and then very excitingly cop 26 and we have a lot going on with sustainability we appointed christian perino as our first uh, chief sustainability officer a couple of months ago and christian is helping us to lead a consortium which is building a blueprint for the future in uh, data centers built on open which we can come back to later and i'm sure we will and also hosting a sustainability Day, a sustainability and open technology day on the 11th of November at COP26 as part of the fringe. So you can see there's a lot of policy work, a lot of legal work. We sweep all of that into this one banner and we use the community's influence to have some impact in that. But of course, we also have to be future facing and we look at the community of the future and we look at helping to, to evolve that in a healthy way through learning. And we do a couple of things there. We have uh, future leaders training sessions, which are geared at business people, developers, covering a wide array of topics. Um, we do a, a weekly Friday, one hour training session most Fridays. And then we also have done our kids camp. And we had our first one last year, second one coming up this year in July, August, sponsored by Red Hat. And that's made up of 10 lessons. I'm told they're unique that there isn't anything else like it in the education space. And they're unique, I think, because we brought together a group of people with skill sets that we thought would create something interesting. So we have an animator, we have a voiceover artist, we have a group creating the scripts. And the lessons this year are really putting open at the heart using the open source definition for the the 10 lessons. Conveniently, there's 10 points in the definition and 10 lessons that worked really well. So each of those draws one out. So in the first, uh, we look at open source, meaning that the source code is available and open source being for everybody. And uh, we bring into that stories about lots of different projects. But by doing that, what we're doing is creating an, an education piece that 
engages children key stage three so years one to three of secondary school with a view over time to building a GCSE building a, a knowledge module for an apprenticeship scheme and of course influencing tertiary education to bring the computer science curriculum to more of an open focus so we see this circle where we go from community to having influence to making the the UK a great place to do legal and policy work rather to do the business of open through our legal and policy work and then feeding into the future generations and the future community through learning. So I did the math and obviously I'm American living in the UK but for international listeners GCSE is like when you're about 16 you take these tests around specialization and I guess they have IT specializations in the UK. I do. Um, still catching up 12 years in Europe but you did years one through three. So that's like what well, you're 11 to 15, 13. Yeah. Oh, 11 to 15. So that brings me to how do what is kids in tech? How do you engage with minors in tech, especially I guess age 13 is the age for social media. Yeah. I don't know if that's a law or what dictates that. It's a law. Oh, it is. Okay. Not that anyone is controlling or verifying their ages because kids are not required to have IDs in this country. But how does that work? How do you do the dynamic yeah. of reaching out to kids and legally and safely? Yeah. So we are not a big organization and it's called safeguarding. Safeguarding is really important. So what we've done is we've created a chunk of content. So our camp last year was 10 lessons plus 10 e-zines. And uh, each of those was sent out, pushed out as an episode via our website and YouTube. And what we did was we didn't require registration. We did a kit giveaway and we gave away 3,200 kits where the supplier has the interaction with the kids. And they're, you know, a supplier, a Pimeroni, they supply lots of kids activities in the tech space. So they have the infrastructure for that distribution piece. And then we worked through community groups. So Children could take the kits and go off and do it themselves. A lot of teachers ordered for classes. In fact, Nicola Sturgeon's former high school did a whole year where all the children in that year, the teachers went and got it at Greenwood Academy, which I thought was really interesting. Um, so that whole class, that whole year of school did it. This year, we are just finalising our details for that and we'll be launching our, our kit giveaway in the next couple of weeks. So there is the interaction with the kids that way. But in the sort of true tradition of open, we do not require registration to participate. What we do is we require registration from a responsible adult for the competition. And we have a competition that this year will run in September that's a follow-up to the course. And it's for teams of four with a responsible adult. So we never have any direct contact with the kids. Unfortunately, you're absolutely right with the age 13 piece. And we did some work with GitHub last year. And we would have loved to be able to have kids modifying code, submitting it. And we just couldn't. It's too complicated with the age group that we're targeting. And in fact, I think if anything, we're likely in the future to go younger. Oh, wow. That's great. Yeah, because you're it's just like learning a foreign language. The younger you learn it, the more open your brain can process. Yeah. Awesome. Interestingly, one of the facts we share, so I'm stealing my thunder, but one of the facts we share in the lesson that focuses on Python and what Python's all about is that more 15-year-olds learn Python than French. In the UK, the world? In the UK, okay. in the UK, which I think is really interesting. So you can see that shift. And what we're pointing out is they learn Python, but they probably aren't taught it's open source or what open source means and why it's important. So that's the layer that we're adding to it. When you're learning Python, are they also contributing? I just think about how open source has 
a diversity, accessibility, equity, and inclusion prob- mm-hmm. well, problems, partly because it's the mix of either there's a lot of the contributors are volunteer. Mm-hmm. And if it's not, it's large corporations are usually the sponsors that are paying people to contribute. And there's a lack of diversity, <laughs> equity, inclusion in most large tech organizations or tech-based organizations. So how does open data and open UK overall, how does that support those goals how can you what are you so very specifically this year what we're doing is the very fact that we gave the kit that you need to participate away is step one and supporting that and I think step two is this very specific project this year where we have a lady Ashley Monagal who is our digital inclusion lead and Ashley has spent this year reaching out and engaging with organizations who in the last 12 months have supplied devices whether that's tablets or laptops to kids to help bridge the digital divide and I'm sure people listening to this outside of the UK will have seen the same problem as kids were asked to be educated from home lack of devices lack of ability to get online and then lack of they they say data but they don't really mean data what they mean is digital content so the fact that they either can't access it or don't have free content to access and that's one of the gaps that we're helping to fill so what we've been doing via Ashley is engaging with these charities so this year when we do our kids giveaway we will start by going out as a a sort of pre-giveaway specifically to those children we've been able to identify or those organizations have been able to identify as giving away kit and they will push that out to try and engage with those kids first One of the problems with that is that when you get a device, if you don't have adults around you who can support you, you may never actually get it to work. And I suppose, I wasn't really going to talk about this, but I suppose when I was growing up, I was in that position. And I think in 1982, I got a ZX Spectrum for Christmas. And it was something that clearly my family had gone without to get me and to give me. And it just didn't work. So it didn't run. And there was nobody who knew how to fix it. So I just never, ever got that thing to work and I never got engaged in that space or learned to code and I'm acutely aware that that's a problem so what Ashley has also been working on is to bring together some training materials to sort of train the trainer type thing so that we can help existing community leaders gift that course to the kids you know it's there it's creative commons it's free anybody can take it and use it I've had some interesting conversations lately with other people who were assuming we would be annoyed if they took it and put it on their website not ours and I don't care as long as it's used that's the point so the more kids that we can push it out to whatever way it goes the better and it really is it's a fun kind of course I think that's partly why it's so different last year we had feedback that we didn't quantify enough in metrics because we didn't do registration but generally that you know I thought coding was going to be boring but this with the glove kit making music is really good fun and the glove is a the mini moo glove kit it was open sourced as part of the process last year it works with a micro bit which in the UK you can borrow from libraries as well as getting it from schools and um, Imogen Heap is not the creator of the glove she's the inspiration a lady called Helen Lee created the glove for Imogen but Imogen tours and uses the glove in making music she's got an adult version that's much more expensive Um, and I met Imogen about 10 years ago when she she had just created that and was looking for some pro bono legal help with the glove. So that's how I got involved with it. And then I think about five years ago, actually, Imogen took me to meet Ariana Grande, who was touring with the glove. And I think that's a big uh, inspiration for girls in particular, for kids generally to get involved using something that you know, not like this boring stuff of your computer that you're going to sit at home with. This is something pop stars tour with. 
Cool. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that. That's really interesting. Um, and before before we move away from education, uh, we've talked a little bit in the past about some of the some of the like stories and metaphors you you like use in the in the lessons. Um, I just wonder if you could like talk about some of them. So like, how do you just explain and sort of describe open source to yeah. young children? Yeah, I think one of the best is right at the beginning of this series. I'm giving everything away. I would be rubbish on TV. Um, the first lesson, we try to explain licensing. And in last year's course, we very gently start to talk about copyright and what that is. We even mentioned copyleft this year, talk about controversial. So in the first lesson, we have a sweater and we have the sweater being loaned or giving, as Scots would say, giving somebody a shot of the sweater, the jumper. And um obviously it can be passed from person to person and we explain that that right to use it that offer of use is the licensing terms and then when the sweater comes back the jumper comes back to the child they're not happy because it really could have done with being washed and they hadn't thought to put that in their license and it's a really really basic really simple way of just opening up through metaphors the the stories around the ip rights you'll see it if you watch the chorus when it comes out but i think it really works i'm really pleased with it this year so I wanted to go on to talk a little bit about the state of open report that Open UK produced and just to sort of dive into kind of sort of what what it is as, as well as kind of what you found out. So I know that uh, recently phase one was, was released. So just to start off, could you sort of talk about the different phases, but also like what you've got so far and kind of what yeah. what you've sort of been discussing, I suppose, and what it features? Yeah, so we launched phase one on the 20th of March, and that was what's called a literary review, literature review. And then phase two, we are going on the 17th of May to be sending a survey out to business and industry. So that's next Monday. And then phase three will be a new economic analysis, and that will be published September, October. Our phase two will be published at the beginning of July. So going back to phase one. What we start with is looking at the existing thinking, the existing information and data around open source software and the reports specific to software. And we cut that for the UK. So we use a number of reports. We've got IBM and Red Hat's cloud reports from this year. We have um, Tidelift's report and CNCF's reports. CNCF actually cut the data really well for us just looking at the UK. And I think people were really surprised to hear that we're the fifth biggest contributor in the world in terms of line of code and number of developers to CNCF. Then we also had the Harvard Linux Foundation reports and the European Commission's report. And the European Commission report is slightly confusing in that it still hasn't been published. They've been working on it for a couple of years and it was expected early February. But what they did on the 5th of February was they shared their data. So we knew what the data was and we knew what the economic model was. And we were able to take that formula and apply it to the UK. And we did two or three different calculations to try and demonstrate the value using existing staff, not creating something new ourselves, of open source to the UK economy, open source software. And what we found was in the very worst case scenario, which we know is kind of nonsense, is worth about 11 billion per annum in GDP. And the more realistic calculation using 126,000 developers as the base point, we got to up to 41.3 billion per annum going into GDP in the UK economy. That's pound sterling. Now, uh, another organization, Tech Nation, produced a report a couple of weeks later. And what that showed us that, is that that formula attributes 20% of the digital economy to open source in the UK. But I know that 126,000 developer figure is way low. So the European Commission, as we Brexited, reduced 
their number of developers for their calculations from 490,000 to 260. So that's 230,000, which is almost double what we used. They say they're being conservative, so maybe it's not quite double. But say we use double, that suddenly makes us 40% of the digital economy. And I still think that's low. So I think we will find that open source, if you look at value generation, is probably around 60% would be my guess. And how am I going to show that? And why am I showing this? So I was interviewed by Jennifer Barth of Smooth Media, who we're working with on the reports in January for a report on open source that she's doing for WP Engine, which I think is due out anytime now. And it occurred to me in the question she was asking me that people just didn't really understand the place of the UK in open source software. We've been part of Europe. We've had no real reason to call ourselves out. And it's really not very British of us to do so, to be quite honest. So we don't do that kind of thing. We don't say, look at us, we're doing a good job. And as I started to drill down into it, it was clear that the UK is the biggest in Europe in terms of contribution, in terms of number of developers. And talking to Jennifer, I realised that if I wanted to persuade government, if Open UK wants to persuade government that they should engage more with open source, this was the way to do it. Hard facts and money. So we took what's out there. We've done the first phase of the reports. Phase two is a survey focused on business and industry to try and get more information about utilisation of open source in the UK, where it fits, whether you're talking education, travel and tourism, energy and utilities, whatever sectors you're looking at, financial services, things that the UK are good at, things that we just do like everybody else, retail. So we want to try and work out what kind of level of adoption there is. And then we're working with a number of different economists, including a chap called Will Page, who is ex-Spotify. And Will's book, Tars and Economics, came out, um, I think, on the 30th of April. Will actually wrote a section for the first report for us. And he's looking at things in the music industry that translate well into open source, where I think 10% of music is now generated by the record companies, 90% by individuals. So there's a huge amount of free and given away stuff like open source. And there's a lot of lessons we can draw from the work he's done around that. We're also trying to collaborate with uh, other international economists and projects so that we create some sort of a base point that isn't just used for us, but can be used by others as well. And then we're, we're hoping to evolve that into phase three. And in phase three, we want to understand what the value generated is, you know, what sort of scale that is. Now, I don't know how much you, you you guys know about this, but the UK government and the devolved governments are all working on digital strategies at the moment. They're all at different stages. And we're really keen to make sure that open is a, a principle that underlies those digital strategies. And we're hoping that the reports will help with that. And I have to say that to their credit, the Department of Culture, Media and Sport, DCMS, sent people along to all of the lunches haven't mentioned lunches, have I? We had lunches to launch the report. We actually held digital lunches and physically sent people lunch and sat around a, a Zoom room type environment together, having lunch and talking about the report, which was really nice. And I think over three lunches, we had about 130 people. We're going to have a, a drinks reception, something similar on the 7th of July to launch phase two. So watch this space for more data on the 7th of July. It's interesting because the statistics are very strong that um, recession sees an increase in open source use, not just because it's free, but more because it's more reliable, less likely to be shut down versus mm -hmm. some software companies that are proprietary and you don't know what's going on. So it makes sense. Mm -hmm. But when you use the phrase 
government engage with open source? Does that mean like government entities using open source? Are they not already? I know the judicial, I know a couple people in the judicial branch, I know they're using it, but... Yeah, the UK has got a really interesting history here. So about a decade ago, I was part of a cabinet office advisory in my role at Canonical. And we worked with Sir Francis Maud, who I have to say is hugely supportive of our current work. Um, He was the cabinet office minister for five years and was responsible for a huge focus in the UK on open standards. We also saw Liam Maxwell, who was the government CTO and is now at AWS, play a big part in that. And what they achieved was really a world-leading strategy in the public sector, which has been replicated around the world. So if you speak to people in Australia, they'll tell you they just lift and shift the UK strategy. But it's sort of like many things in government, you will find that, you know, when there's a shift in government, things that have been in fashion go out of fashion and they come back in again with another shift. And that's sort of happened around open source. Now, I know that we still have large scale adoption and utilization. Don't quite know what that scale is. I'm not sure we'll get that out of our survey, but it would be interesting to know. So there is a lot of that in the UK. But what we didn't have in that policy and in those, uh, I think there's a business strategy and various guidelines. They do say, you know, you must use open source and open first, but what they don't say is the consequence of not doing it. And things changed in Europe during the pandemic. The Pirate Party pushed an amendment through last April, which means that every public body institution, maybe a better word, has to be audited for its use of open source and part of its annual audit. And they have to show why they don't use it when they don't. Now, that's a financial trigger a financial set of teeth that come back to bite you if you're not following the rules. Something like that would be brilliant to have here. But also just as we see DCMS start to shape that digital strategy, Oliver Dowd and the minister has come out with 10 principles, none of which are about open. What I would love to see is that we have instead open underlying all 10, open spanning all 10. So that's my goal. So you mentioned phase one, and I've, I've had a look through phase one of the report quickly. Um, and I know, you know, like, like you said, Will Page is featured in it um, and lots of different people kind of speaking, lots of mm-hmm. different insights. I just wanted to get from you, like, were there any that stood out for you that you kind of remember, you think sort of are particularly interesting, um, yeah, that people said in the process of putting it together? There's one that isn't used in phase one that says that open source is gravity. It's like gravity. It's all around us. It's everywhere and it's inescapable. And that was used as a challenge to me as to why this was necessary now. Why did it matter anymore? And it really made me think. And I I think this is really important for anybody who supports open source when they're talking to others with that attitude. And in some ways, open source can be seen to have one. You know, it's according to Tidelift and over 90 percent of stacks and over 70 percent of code. But we've also seen things like the shift in the elastic licensing from Apache 2.0 to SSPL and SSPL is not open source and that causes huge confusion. And the way that that was sort of dressed, there was a blog to introduce it from Elastic's founder, Shai Bannon, which said doubling down on open. And, you know, there's a natural assumption and a fair assumption that people make when they read things like that, that SSPL is open and the fact that it's not and it's not OSI approved, it escapes people. And then that all leads to fund and confusion. Confusion. So I think the the fact that open source appears to have won is a, a fragile state that could very easily be smashed if we're not careful. And it's partly why I'm so passionate, not just about government understanding, but making and the producing things like the report for business information too, but that we were bringing up a generation of kids who really understand. Because I think when when I first got into open source, a lot of the developers I met 
you know, 10, 15 years ago, they had made a conscious decision to move away from proprietary to open. So they really understood why. I think there's a generation that we may have done a disservice and not spent enough time explaining the principles and the, the history and doing that in an engaging way is always difficult, right? Nobody wants to hear about how we won the war. Uh, war stories are not attractive. But I think there is a need to understand it. And a lot of people have come to open and accept it as the norm without understanding the nuance because it's just been the way that they've learned to develop. So I've had conversations with really great developers who think they're open source developers, but wouldn't have known or didn't know that they had to attach a license and that that license had to be OSI approved for it to be open source. Of course, they don't have to, they can not, but it's proprietary. Yeah, I guess it's it's kind of a, a fragile situation, sort of a fragile piece, really. You know, yeah, you, and then there's, to, there's, there's been this weird of, thing, actually. Yeah. There's been this really strange thing on Twitter where proprietary is sort of treated like a dirty word, right? And it's really, or two dirty words, um, proprietary software. But it's kind of funny because people still make proprietary code, right? And there's some instances where they can justify that and they choose to do it. And I think that something that escapes people a lot of the time is that a lot of this is focused on copyright and focused on a definition of what open source is. So either it's open source or it's not. And if it's not, there is no alternative. It is proprietary and proprietary covers a multitude of sins in that space. So if it doesn't meet the requirements of open source, i.e. the source code is shared, but it's shared in a way that's distributed on an OSI approved license that meets the OSD, then you get into this this problem. And there are some open source projects that have non-OSI approved licensing, and that all gets a bit confusing for people. Cool. So maybe we could dig a bit more into that and, and just get you to talk a bit more about the like challenges of open source today. So you know, if it, if it is gravity or if it isn't gravity, like what 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 kind of is holding it back or what is like, where are the frictions and things? So I'm yeah. thinking of like unpaid labor and the maintenance um, yeah. kind of big tech's role in sort of owning them and sort of driving them forward, which is beneficial in a lot of ways, but potentially has some risks. So yeah, I wanted to get mm. your thoughts on that. If these challenges exist, are they different for the UK versus the world? Is there unique challenges facing the UK right now? Mm-hmm. Wow. So there are some things that are specific to the UK and some things that I think are global. And in the last couple of weeks, I've been working to finish a book that will be published later this year by Oxford University Press, uh, Open Source Software Law Policy and Practice. And I'm really proud of the book, actually. I'll never, ever do it again because it's been so much work. And there are 20 authors and 24 chapters. But the thing that makes it great, the thing that I'm proud of is that we've got the funding for it to be open access. So once this is created, it covers all the different areas of um, things like community governance by Stephen Wally and Nithya Ruff in the US looking at OSPOs, all the different aspects of legal, things like open hardware with Andrew Katz, who I mentioned earlier. So it's a really fantastic text. And it's going to be available for everybody. But it's really focused me because I've spent months and months editing everybody else's content and thinking about it. I mean, people like Richard Fontana writing about AGPL, which he was one of the authors of, and Cloud and where those fit together goes directly to business models. And my chapter is about business models and revenue. And I've also been working through another podcast called Open Source Underdogs. There's like 55 of them now, where Mike Schwartz of Glue, Mike uh, interviews founders in open source companies. Very brilliant set of podcasts. Really, Mike puts, he's incredibly thorough and puts a huge amount of work into them. And you can see that when you listen. And preparing for some keynotes that I've got coming up, I think the first one's Percona on Wednesday, and really thinking about these issues 
sorry, I am drifting, but there is a point. So also, we've just appointed our first entrepreneur in residence, Matt Barker, who is the founder of Jetstack, which was one of the first Kubernetes companies. And he is still involved with it, although he sold it a year or two ago. And Matt's going to be leading a founders forum for us looking at the UK issue. And the UK issue is why are we not producing more big companies doing open? Because we are the fifth biggest in the world by contribution. If you were to pick a snapshot, look at the contribution to NASA's Jet Propulsion Labs and the Ingenuity Project, and we're the third biggest contributor in GitHub, you know, folk from the UK. So as we look at it again and again, we see the UK is up there with the number of people involved in this, yet we are not producing a mass of successful, scalable or scaling companies. So there is a UK-focused issue that we have to work out. On the other hand, there is an issue that we're seeing across the board. Some of that comes from what you think open source is. So earlier I threw a definition at you, which is like the legal definition involving licensing. But there's another piece to it. And the other piece is when we're talking about open source, what does it mean to us? You know, and I, I personally will jump on community and collaboration because those are the things that I really like and I engage with. Other people will jump on that it's for big companies to come together and collaborate and create non-differentiating software in non-permanent collaborations through things like Eclipse and Linux Foundation or OpenStack, Open Infra's it now is, where they create something that they they save huge amounts of money on and create a de facto standard. Somebody else, if you were to talk to Linus Tavalis, I bet his view would be different because he scratched an itch and he created something that is now absolutely fundamental to society, but has over 15,000 contributors as we, we stand today. Look at the founders of HashiCore or Mongo, and they're going to tell you that it's a couple of guys coming together, creating a project, building an ecosystem. And I think in HashiCore's case, it was genuinely accidental that that became a company and they ended up hiring the community into it. You know, so everybody's got different experiences because it's quite a broad church. And I think that really impacts the issues. And some of the issues are people needing to eat, right? Needing to have a house, needing to be able to afford things, but wanting to give their lives. You know, and my position hasn't been that different from many developers. You have to find a way of being able to do that that also funds you. And you mentioned paying the maintainers. We're seeing the good work of companies like Tidelift, Open Teams, Gitcoin. There's a raft of them now finding ways to pay the maintainers, even GitHub's um, support structure, then we we see companies coming to problems, not just with the maintainers, where you've had projects that have had to be swept into foundations with things like Heartbleed and, you know, worrying about using Open if you're not sure it's going to be there in the future, if it's not sustainable in that sustainability piece. But also we see companies building sustainable businesses around open source and businesses that can grow and scale, which gets me back to my, my founders forum in the UK. And I don't think this is a UK specific problem. I think it's a global one. And what we have to look at is that open source is very definitely the best way to create good software, high quality software, right? I don't think anybody's going to argue it's got the best methodologies, the outputs are going to involve a lot of people, they should be better. But it's not the best way to build a business. And that doesn't mean you can't make money out of it. It means that you have to look to business models when you want to do business. And you have to think about how that's structured. And the first report on this actually came out in my first few months at Canonical. It came out in October 2008 by a company called 451. It was drafted by a guy called Matt Aslett. And I've been back in the last 10 days reading it again. And he actually says, and I'm quoting here, the bottom line is that open source is not a business model. And that's something we've known, what, 13 years nearly. 
you know, it's been written down for all that time. Yet we've seen people naively jump into businesses, apparently not understanding that once you've shared your code as open source, anybody can use it. And for me, when I left Canonical, I spent a couple of years in London, far too early stage, but in a law firm trying to only do open source work. So you can imagine former general counsel of Canonical, biggest open source company in Europe, I think at the time, people came to me and wanted to open source their businesses. And having been through the experience that I'd been through at Canonical, where in my five years, I saw a shift and I saw a shift from on-prem to cloud, which has a shift in business models and revenue models. It doesn't change the software. It doesn't change the fact it's open source you might not be distributing it anymore so a lot of the obligations might not be triggered and um, what I saw was that that can be difficult and um, I came up with a little very simple what if theory that I would use with business people or what if question so what if you share your code and other people use it and generally they're fine with that right that's what they're expecting what if you share your code and someone else makes money? And you can see people flinch, right? They, they may still be trying to think that's okay, I'm fine with that. But they do flinch a little bit when you ask them that, if it's their money that's at stake. And then if you say to them, what if somebody else makes a hell of a lot of money out of this and you don't? And you have to sit back and watch that being done with your hard work. And quite often they wouldn't come back to me because I'd put them off. And I still think that's better because if you can't find a way of commercializing what you're doing and you want to open source it you are not going to be happy once you've done it and it's not going to be there in 10 years time you're not going to sustain that project if you don't understand that from the start and I think that's at the the fundamental base of why we've seen a few apparently successful companies and they are apparently successful none of them are exactly failing shift away from open source to SSPL or the commons clause or the likes and that creates this confusion. Do you ever ask, and I add another question to ask people, Mm. what if someone uses your code in a way you didn't expect them to, whether it's to support white nationalism or to create bombs or to... Oh, I've spent hours talking to people about this over the years, mainly with people drinking at the time, to be quite honest, after conferences. And I've sat down with a really good friend who knows open source much, much better than I, yet he still said to me, but couldn't I just stop them from using it in weapons? You know, and he's got absolutely the right intention. Very few of us would say that we didn't agree with that. Some might, but very few of us. Yet he can't do it because once you open source it, open source definition six does not allow any discrimination by field of use. And that's really important. So you you can't stop someone else making money with it. And I will be honest, that's probably the only one I can rattle off like that. And it's because it's the one that I've been focused on. And um, that lack of understanding of the open source definition I think is probably fundamental to a lot of issues we've seen around open source. And it's why this year specifically we focused on that for the kids course, because if the next generation can come through understanding it a bit better, I think that's a good thing. So do you, I mean, I, I assume kind of as the sort of CEO of Open UK you do, but like, what do you think we can do sort of, you know, as government society to kind of make it easier to commercialize or leverage open source like what what things can could be I think done? that's the wrong statement so yeah. I don't think the point sorry I, I don't think the point yeah, of no, open fine. source yeah. is to be commercialized yeah 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 I think the point of open source is to make the best software I think okay. if you want to commercialize yeah. it and you want to make an income from it that's a different thing and what you then need to do is look at both business and revenue models and the state of technology 
And right now, that means working out how you're going to put your code into a cloud environment and still make money, which comes down to negotiation and being able to broker deals with the big cloud providers, which many companies are doing successfully, right? You see someone like Rancher sold for $600 million to Suze last year. They did a pretty good job of it. And if you listen to Shannon Williams' Open Source Underdogs podcast, he is really clear about his understanding of open source and knowing how to do business. And what he talks about is this huge advantage that open source has. Something else that's changed in the last decade is this, uh, first of all, Git. I think it's 2009 that Linus created it. Something like that. I'm not always right on my dates, but it's about then. So it's not that old. And then you see the rise of this Git economy, GitHub, GitLab, and the ability of organizations to take open source without going through a procurement or a legal process. Now, that is an advantage that proprietary code will never compete with. And what that allows is, you know, you take it into your organization, kick the tires, decide that you want to use it and then you go to the open source provider to get your additional support or whatever the, the their business model is whatever else you can buy around it could be open core could be add-ons and the thing with that is that 10 years ago when Matt Aslett wrote his report one of the things he identified is that the development and marketing costs were high and we didn't know how to sell it I spent my days trying to persuade lawyers that it was okay to use and it was exhausting and I felt like a parrot you don't need to do that anymore because it's got into their organizations and that way open source is undoubtedly one and smart businesses are focusing on that being their model and allowing the customers to come to them as they build traction so your your marketing budget is spent on inward marketing. And I don't know Shannon, but I know that I've met him several times at open source conferences, whether it's a Linux Foundation event or all things open, because he was standing on that stall speaking to the development community month after month after month. And that's how you build an open source business today. That's the way to look at the inbound marketing and to generate that. The other thing that I will say that I found from the research that I've done is that the companies who are single product vendors, and if you look at Elastic and Mongo, they're in that category, are the most vulnerable because they're, they're vulnerable by putting all their eggs in one basket, particularly in the cloud space. And what you see is other companies that are a little bit more diverse, whether it's a HashiCorp or a Rancher, have done much better. So if I was advising anybody, I would say, you know, get your get your GitHub strategy right, get your Git strategy, GitLab, whatever it is, get that strategy right, focus on inbound marketing and um, try and be multi-product, try not to be too focused on one product. But I think as we evolve, that will change, right? So we're looking at it from a cloud perspective now. In five years, 10 years, there'll be things that we haven't imagined and AI and ML will be having an impact and we'll have to shift and diversify again. And it's why I don't think, although I am part of a group looking at how the OSD could be changed if it ever needs to be, because I am open-minded about it, it's not carved in stone. I still believe that fundamentally the OSD probably doesn't shift. What shifts is our business models and we keep developing and evolving ways of making revenue around it because we're tech storytellers and we like semantics i keep noticing you're using the term open source developers is there a movement to talk about other contributions to the open source world including translation obviously most code and most notes yeah documentation 
Yeah, that's interesting. And I use developers because I came into a development organization and my experience, you know, I said right back at the beginning, we each shape our stories of open and our understanding of open based on what we did. And for me, I was part of an organization with multiple products, but one key product. I was also part of some of these multi-company things. So those both make a lot of sense to me. But as a lawyer, I, am, I very quickly grew to have a huge respect for the development community. And I suppose for me, I really like working with them. And that's why I focus on them. Yet I am a part of the baggage and the add-ons, right? Which we won't call baggage and add-ons anymore. We'll call all the positive skills. And it's something that when we're talking about UK leadership, a lot of what our organization does is develop the leadership and those support functions, those service functions that facilitate the business of open. Because the developers, other than looking at features and product development, don't have that much engagement in the actual business of open generally. It is something we're thinking about in terms of building companies. And it's something our, our founders forum will look at is what are the skills and the diversity of skills that you need to bring into an organization. And I suppose without being offensive to anybody I've ever worked with, I've seen things like sales go badly wrong when founders are very impressed by salespeople from companies with all the big names behind them. And often they have no idea of how to work in a startup or how to sell something new. They're used to doing big cookie cutter deals that are in standard forums and everybody signs your paper if you're IBM. You know, so there's all those hurdles and learnings to get around. So, yeah, Jennifer, I agree with you. You're right. And I need to pick myself up for that one. So I, I don't want to kind of take up too much more of your time. But sort of for this last bit of the episode, I wanted to talk a bit about the Open UK Awards. So we talked a bit mm. about your report, but I thought it might be good just to kind of talk about your work in terms of, yeah, I guess just like raising the visibility of, of Open and just sort of also kind of giving a shout out to you know people that are part of the community and, and the people that yeah you've, you've awarded I guess so could you yeah just explain kind of a bit about the Open UK awards some interesting winners as well from most yeah recent- we actually have a couple of things so we have the awards and in 2020 on New Year's Eve we had the honours list so let me tell you quickly about the honours list first so it's a very very British thing which happens in the UK because the Queen gives New Year's honours out and we decided having researched it and found out that we didn't think we were committing to treason to do something like that ourselves and for Open UK to give out 100 honours on New Year's Eve and actually for me it really shows the power of community and that the single tweet we sent out like a couple of minutes past midnight on the 1st of January has over 300,000 impressions on Twitter now but it was celebrating the hundred people in the UK who we'd showcased as influencers. And I will say that I thought it was a one-off. We did it to cheer everybody up as we went into Brexit and it'd been a bit of a rough year as we all know, but actually it was so popular and so successful and we could easily do several hundred that we may well do another hundred this year. The second thing is the awards where one is able to put oneself or another person or company or project forward for an award. And we actually launched the 2021s on Friday. And we have eight categories. We have software, hardware, data, which are um, financial services or open source and financial services, which are for projects, organizations or companies. We have a Belonging Network Award, which is DEI, Diversity and Inclusion. And it is for individuals or projects it's just 
something that really has helped on that front. Then we have, I think for one year only, the Sustainability Award, but who knows, that may become a regular for us. And we decided to put that in because we'll be hosting the awards at COP26. They will be a digital event for up to 200 people, but we are expecting to be hosting, assuming it's a face-to-face event, at COP26, uh, Sustainability and Open Source Day. And I don't mean, I mean sustainability as in the full gambit of sustainability and the, the SDGs and the US work, sustainability as opposed to maintainers, but sustainability and open source day on the 11th of November. So I've digressed from the awards. Software, hardware, data, financial services, belonging network, sustainability, young person. Now that was our toughest category last year because we had most nominations for it and they are really awesome people. They were just incredible and it was really hard to decide. And that's someone, no requirement to be in academia, but someone aged between 18 and 25. And then Individual, which was equally awesome. And Liz Rice won the 2020 award. Now, I mean, Liz is pretty well known. When it came to the honours list, we had people like Sir Tim Berners-Lee, who is British. And we had Jimmy Wales, who is not British, but lives in the UK. So you can see there's some pretty incredible people here. For this year's awards, anybody who would like to nominate themselves, and we encourage self-nomination or somebody else or a project, etc., can do that at openuk.uk slash awards. It's also pinned to our Twitter account and it's open until 11.59pm UK on the 13th of June. Brilliant. Um, when I should so- th- sorry, I should thank Bristow's Law Firm for sponsoring the awards for a second year and the eight different sponsors for sponsoring the individual categories whilst I remember. Sorry. No, thank you. Um, when when will the awards be? Like when, when will the sort of presentation? 11th of November. Evening okay. of 11th of November. So we'll have the Open Source and Sustainability Day at COP. And then I think it's something like five to seven. We will both give out the eight prizes, the eight winners prizes, announce those. But we will also give the kids competition winners their prizes that day too. Awesome. So yeah, so that's that's almost everything. But just to end, finally, it'd just be good to kind of hear from you, like what your focus is um, sort of personally for Open UK, but also just the organisation as well. Like what... Yeah, what's going on over the next year or so, I guess? In November, we're going to have our first board elections and half the board will stand down, including me, because I was a board member before I was CEO and I don't think I should really be both. So six of us will step down. And there will be, some of them may stand for renomination, uh, but there will be a vote first week in November. And if you want to be eligible to vote, you have to be a supporter. To become a supporter, openuk.uk slash supporters, all very simple. And that requires a monthly payment, which I think is set at £5 a month, but can go down as low as £3 a month. And uh, you have to be signed up six months before. So you have to be signed up by 31st May. So if you're interested, please do go and join. But I will also say that there is no need to pay anything to be involved in the organisation and participate in our projects or attend events. That's just if you want to become a supporter and have the right to vote or stand in our elections. So that's obviously a biggie. I think for us, COP26 is a unique event in the UK. And being part of that with the Open Source and Sustainability Day on the 11th of November. And hopefully the blueprint 
for the Open Data Centre of the future. We're working with a consortium to pull together a model which will be shared Creative Commons, which will have um, open hardware running open source software and where we'll open up the data. And we're currently waiting for the Cabinet Office to decide whether or not we're in the main event, which will be in the Scottish Exhibition Centre. But we've applied for the IMAX cinema. So if we get into that, we will be making an IMAX movie, which will be another super exciting first for us. Very cool. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's that's pretty much everything. So um, thank you for joining us. Uh, yeah, it's been really interesting. And obviously, like I said, you know, lots of great work going on and important work as well. But um, just to thank yeah, you. just to end, it'd just be good to give you a chance just to kind of promote where people can find you, um, anything Open UK related you want to promote or, you know, maybe anything else. So you can find us at openuk.uk, openuk underscore UK. I'm Amanda Brock UK. There's lots of UKs going on in that. That was a sheer coincidence. I happened to have that Twitter account when I joined. I think I've probably promoted enough of what we're doing. I'm dizzy with it all, to be honest. But uh, and uh, if you if you see the book, which will be published, open source software law policy and practice by Oxford University Press. I think by October, we'll be giving a couple of hundred copies away at conferences. But the the actual content will be available open access by e-reader I think it's something that will help projects and I, I hope people take it and use it cool amazing yeah I know I'm looking forward to to seeing that and I'm sure that's like you say been a lot of work and but yeah it'll be good when never that's... again I'm really clear yeah. about that that's a one-off <laughs> you're not alone in our we interview a lot of authors and they're either one-off or repeat 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. Not writing is different writing is great I love writing editing other people's writing is tough Oh, so, so did you did you contribute a chapter or anything? Yeah, so I contributed a chapter on commercial models, but yeah. I edited 23 other chapters. Okay, so your chapter, fine, easy. My That's chapter's the... fine, yeah, mine's really easy. It's the other 23 that are the problems. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, no, I, I can imagine. Yeah, no, 23 is, um, that's a lot. But. A lot. It's a lot. And I mean, there was, I won't say whose, but one of them was meant to be 15,000 words and arrived at 21,000. Uh, Getting that to 15,000 was a lot of work. That, that sounds like a kindred spirit for you, Jennifer, in your writing style. <laughs> for sure. I would never be in a book or a print medium again. Oh, yeah, you, oh, yeah. Not, not enough paper. <laughs> trees mean we need the trees yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway yeah so th- thanks for joining us again uh, um, thank you for having me um yeah it's been been great um yeah and hopefully we can catch up again about open uk sort of maybe Brilliant. later in the year or next year that's all for this week's episode thank you to amanda for joining us we really appreciate her coming on and chatting about open uk uh, we hope you enjoyed listening Um, So thank you as well for listening and to listen to earlier episodes of what we talk about when we talk about tech, please head to our website, which is talkabouttechpodcast.com. And yeah, you'll be able to find everything else we've done. So there's lots of conversations there that you'll find really interesting, I think. As always, follow the podcast on Twitter. Our account is at underscore talkabouttech. Um, Yeah, we'll keep you updated on new episodes and we'll share stories from previous guests, all that sort of stuff. And as I said at the start, my Twitter account is at Rich G Gould and Jennifer is at JK Riggins. But yeah, that's all for this week's episode. Thank you very much for listening. And until next time, goodbye.